The Mahe Mysteries is brought to you in association with Seychelles Tourism from the land of tradition, mystery and endless surprise. For more information, visit www.seychelles.travel. Mahe Mysteries, investigated by Patrick Muirhead, inspired by real events on a remote tropical island, but all characters and action depicted are imaginary. All that remains. Episode 9. I texted Claudette as I stood on the shadowy veranda, a Winston hanging from my lip the distant alien glow of the police tent among the trees, providing the only illumination in the darkest of nights. Body found near our place, I wrote. Get a crew here first thing. Oh, and good evening. Sorry to disturb. That was enough, I felt, to discharge the debt. As ever in such instances, I knew journalists from other media outlets would soon hear the first murmurings of the gruesome discovery, leaked by loose-lipped officers of the law to their lovers or friends, that would surely find their way online before daybreak. So what I knew was thus. Three sand-covered human skulls had been deposited at points around Mahe, one of them at Père Maurice's church, the others elsewhere. The doleful priest, under internal investigation for missteps unknown, had admitted to a fatal argument following a peccadillo with Toto La Fortune, the long-vanished gardener of the Dachalis estate. His blackmailer was a rough diamond who, like other Sichuan men, traded a limited menu of sexual favours for a consideration, a quirk of island life though not a reliable indicator of individual preference. Indeed, Toto, we had learned, had fathered a child by Angelique, the eldest daughter of the Comtesse Marie-Alice de Chalis, a fact so shaming the family had enlisted the help of their priest and the housemaid to remove the baby to an orphanage. And that child, Samuel, his lineage proven by his colorblindness and institutional upbringing, had grown into his late father's shoes, if not his habits, to be given a gardening job on the estate. All was clear, except one detail. The corpse that Père Maurice had claimed he and Bernard Joliquer had buried on the estate in a hurried quasi-Christian ritual bore an injury inconsistent with the priest's account. It was headless. At that instant, a WhatsApp notification lit up my phone screen, and I opened it. Claudette, in the dead of night. The swiftness of the response was heartwarming. You've seen this, she wrote. It was posted on Seychelles Whispers. There was a photo attached, an image snatched by smartphone, showing the first of the skulls that had been discovered on the steps of Notre-Dame de Perpetuel Secours, 
with its accompanying note just protruding beneath. It was hard to decipher the scribbled words, but after zooming in, it seemed to signal a personal rather than more obviously political threat. I flicked away my cigarette and hurried back into the house, returning unhesitatingly to the bedroom, bracing myself before shaking the somnolent Sebastian awake. Ah, oh, wee oui, Patrick, la qui en encore, he groaned. Why are you disturbing me in the middle of my goddamn sleep? He sucked his teeth. What time is it? I need you to translate this. It's important, I said. Sebastian extended reluctant fingers from beneath the rumpled bedsheets and took my phone, blinking at the glowing screen. He inspected the photo, scratching his nose. It means basically, remember him, father, the man in the forest he hasn't forgotten, or something like that. He chucked the phone back at me before turning over to resume his favoured fetal position. Now let me sleep, he muttered. I tiptoed away to sit with the dogs, fully awake now and their tails wagging, as I shushed them to study the image in my hand. Zooming out the photo, I wanted a clearer view of the skull that the note was sitting on. It was as we had seen on the TV news on the first evening following its discovery, aged yellow and sandy. But now, in crisper close-up than ENG pictures could render, there was something much more obvious and distinctive about it. I remembered the priest's words in our previous conversation. He was always getting in fights and making trouble for himself. He was missing a front tooth. And how, earlier still, Frédéric had declared that as boys he and Toto had played and sometimes fought. And in one such fight, the youngest of the Comtesse's heirs had admitted smashing in Toto's face. At that moment, pondering an old, sand-encrusted human skull with a visibly missing front tooth, I realised I was probably staring at the head of the long-departed gardener. At daybreak, I was led by custom onto the beach by Linus and Lucy, bypassing the newly uncovered and guarded crime scene. We ambled companionably together along the shore while I reflected on my next steps in the case beneath a fresh violet sky. By half past six and uncharacteristically energised without the usual stimulant of morning caffeine, I was back at the cottage, lathering my face and hearing the arrival of the first police vehicles outside. The overnight security was being relieved by the incoming morning shift. I knew there was little time to lose. I washed hurriedly, threw on a crumpled t-shirt and shorts, and crept out of the cottage long before Sebastien had stirred. At Polonais, I found Frédéric awake, present in being, but hungover, 
leaning into the engine compartment of an old Toyota Corolla. He rolled his eyes towards me slowly as I approached. Stepping back, he pushed an oily hand through untidy hair. What now, journalist Anglais, he said. I'm a busy, hard-working man. You told me you fought with Toto and knocked out his tooth. So? You think I tell a lie? I want to know why you fought with him. Uh, you said you were friends. Frédéric shrugged. I reached for my wallet and pulled out 100 rupees. He folded it into his hand and ran his tongue pensively over dry lips. I told you already, he became a bad character. His eyes cast down. In what sense, bad? No, you couldn't trust him, Frederic replied. He was no longer my brother, not like before. He, he became, like we say, Sungula. I knew the Seychelles folklore allusion. Sungula, the half-man, half-monkey, who in the island's ancient tradition of children's morality tales cheated his friends to gain advantage. Butsungula's schemes always ended in failure, while those he swindled usually prevailed. A salutary message so often forgotten, I noted. So how did he cheat you? I asked. He didn't. He tried to blackmail money out of me, said I owed him some rupees from playing domino. It wasn't true. He said he would go to my mother and raise a big stink if I didn't pay him. He was that kind of person. So we had a fight, and that's it. Did you kill him, Frederic? I asked. Kill him? Eh, voila! What are you saying, mon Dallon? I remained unsure whether to believe him. Now, did you? Of course not. How could I? Are you crazy, man? Just for a few rupees? You stood to gain by his disappearance, I said. He looked at me quizzically. How do you mean? Your name. Your family's good standing in Seychelles. I don't know about this, he said. I have no good standing now. Not even then. It seemed improbable that Frederic would admit to more, even if he had killed Toto, which I frankly doubted. Deep inside his Baca-ravaged soul, I knew Frederic de Chalice, raised by the Bible, was a rebellious black sheep, but not a killer. By mid-morning, the combined forces of the state-owned Radio S, which had spectacularly and characteristically missed the country's biggest breaking news story in months, and Radio Bamboo, which emphatically hadn't, had confirmed the public's belief about many of the actual latest developments and a fair number of imagined ones. Both at the petrol station in Grandons and the Bangladeshi grocer's shop, I was assailed by outraged Say TV viewers asking if I could confirm any of the fantastically embellished details. Had they trapped the green-eyed werewolf responsible for the killing? Was the corpse of an infant found slain in the skeleton's arms? Was it true the victim was the former president, 
stabbed in the neck in a plot to discredit the new government. I caught up with Hortense Gontier soon afterwards, spotted standing in line at a snack stall a short distance from her office in town, and fell into step beside her. I'm not going to say anything more to you, Mr. Muirhead, she said. You're becoming a nuisance, so go away. But you must admit, I said, quickening my pace with hers, Toto's testimony rather dropped your husband in it, didn't it? You had everything. Married to a dashing, influential man, someone who's going places. You had an enviable life. She stopped suddenly and scowled at me. What on earth are you suggesting? That because Dolor, because my greedy ex-husband couldn't resist a backhander, I was plunged into poverty and wanted to punish the gardener? Don't be so silly. All I have now, I have honestly deserved. Because now, you have to work like the rest of us. There's nothing wrong with that, she retorted. And from what I've heard, that's more than you're doing. No job, but you still think you're the kingpin at Say TV. And broke, I said. And as we both know, those who fall furthest fall harder. She resumed a brisker walk, tightening her grip on a bag of samosas. Well, I can tell you, although it's absolutely none of your business, that my marriage was far from what it appeared. We were not going to remain together, and I had already filed for divorce, for a variety of other reasons. My husband's infidelity being the main one, nothing to do with his criminal activities, of which I knew nothing then. So you're telling me you had no reason to want Toto out of the way? Other than the fact that repulsive pig was LDS, not really. But whatever his shortcomings, his misguided politics wasn't a capital offence. We had arrived at the swing doors of the pension fund, and she swept inside, leaving me staring after her, weighing the distinct possibility that, again that morning, I had encountered a scion of the de Chalis dynasty whose account seemed, on the face of it, plausible, and if inquiries and dates were cross-checked, easily tested. It is a short hop from Caravelle House, the place of Hortense Gontier's honest and respectable employment, to Independence House, home of internal affairs. I decided to leave the moke where it was parked and walk the distance, anticipating that securing an appointment with the Comtesse's eldest daughter, Angelique, was improbable. With the public's interest in her family's estate now at full strength, I knew better and familiar faces from the press were already circling at the bottom of the stairs leading to the government offices. I opted instead to while away time chatting to the car park security guard, Roger, a man who had once held senior police rank, but had been forced to resign for resisting his superior's instructions to reassign his politically less aligned subordinates. She's coming down now he told me, looking over at the back entrance. But don't tell her I told you that, and you owe me. The Mahe Mysteries was created by Patrick Muirhead 
and Lindsay Farabel. It was written, narrated, and produced by Patrick Muirhead. Music was by Isham Rath. It was an operculum media production recorded on location in Mahe Island, Seychelles. The Mahe Mysteries is brought to you in association with Seychelles Tourism from the land of tradition, mystery and endless surprise. For more information, visit www.seychelles.travel. Hello everyone. My name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.